Welcome to Raising Equity. Today we have with us an amazing woman that I met about a year or so ago at a conference. And I wanted to have her on. Actually, she was on my list of people to have on the Raising Equity podcast for a while. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the pandemic has has brought her to us. We have Inkem Ndefo, who is the founder of Lumos Transforms and the creator of the Resilience Toolkit. She's a nurse by training. And like I said, I met her about a year ago, and she really um, impressed me with her way of expressing and explaining ideas about our health that are complicated in ways that we all can understand. And so I'm really excited to have her here with us to share with us her thoughts, her ideas, and her wisdom. So welcome. Thanks so much for being with me, and Kim. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sad about the occasion, but I'm glad to be in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you amidst this pandemic? How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay at this moment. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, I think um, cycling through lots of different responses, as we all are, um, sometimes feeling overwhelmed and like um, just about the enormity and the severity of what what's going on and what we're facing. At other times, hopeful um, that, you know, sometimes when things are destabilized, new ways of being and doing can emerge that might be, you know, pretty amazing. And probably everything in between. <laughs> I concur. It's It's been so interesting. One of the first things that I feel like uh, I learned, and I've been asking myself and other people, like, what are you learning and what do you want to remember? And one of the first things I learned in those first couple days was how quickly we can change if we choose to. That so often in academia, we talk about how you know, things don't change quickly. It's like a glacier. And I don't think academia is alone. Like institutions take a lot of work to shift. And yet, literally, in a matter of days, we were we were doing things differently. We were virtual when we used to be face-to-face. We were putting jobs that that we thought couldn't be done at home, you know, for, at home. There were so many ways that we were making this hard left. And for me, it was a reminder, especially in this like political season where there are big ideas that come across because politics and po- politicians and we're in this election cycle and things that we swear are impossible. And yet here we go doing what we thought was impossible just a few weeks ago. Right. Well, what they say, it's impossible until it's done. Um, You know, I mean, I think there's a lesson from disability rights activists who have been saying for a long time, like, this can be done remotely. These things can be done differently. And there was no, no, no. And suddenly, miraculously, right? Wow, it can happen. When there's will, it's amazing what we can do, right? So really, um, you know, that that's one thing that I hope we remember about the when what our will can do right? What will can do and uh, not let people or institutions hide behind the, because we've always done it that way. Yeah. And we're good at hiding behind that. And it was, I'm not usually a conspiracy theorist, but as our government has talked about, we'll be open by April, you know, all of this, it's made me think for all sorts of reasons, capitalism, all, of course, it makes sense why 
folks might try to push to reopen things when the virus is clearly not done. But what I thought about was just that it it would change the fabric of our nation if we got too comfortable doing things differently and like dreaming of the possibilities of and having to be having to be creative and 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 function differently if we don't get back to the way things were it it does threaten the way things were which i'm okay with i actually welcome it but i can imagine folks who want to hold on to the status quo not so much we're never going to be the same this little teeny virus we are never going to be the same i've had conversations today with people in South Africa, in England, um, like it's just rending the fabric of the way things are done in all little and big ways. Can you give some examples? Because I I like the fact that you're that you're talking about not just here in the United States, but globally, you're seeing ways in which things are shifting or have shifted. I mean, I think, you know, so South Africa just went on lockdown. Today's their first day. Okay. Today is their first day on lockdown. And it's the conversation that I was having is that, and I think it's applicable here to the U.S. as well, where we have a lower middle class that throws their lot in with the wealthy, right? That throws their lot in with the wealthy. Right? Um, And that... But it's a very tenuous because there's a lot of similarities between South Africa and the U.S. And but it's a very tenuous position because there's a lot of debt, right? It's very tenuous, and so with this, what happens? It's literally the bottom's falling out, and so it's like this opening for our, you know, where where are your allegiances when you realize like I'm just a moment away from like destitution, right? So it was always like I'm not homeless. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not in the townships. I'm in the cities. I'm, but they're just this far away. And so, um, that it's like this opening where people are kind of stunned about how quickly things can tumble, how quickly I things hope, can though, tumble. Those moments allow more people to move differently than to cling to what was and I think about some of your work that I and I want you to share with folks the the essence of the resilience toolkit and just more broadly your your work. But from what I know and from what I understand, the importance of being able to to center oneself and to ground oneself uh, emotionally, physiologically, right, and to be grounded and centered allows you to move differently. That if you're not in times like this and in moments like this, you can get tossed and turned and thrown in all sorts of directions uh, and not have as much agency. So I think about it as like being centered and grounded as like that tree that's deeply rooted when there is a storm. It's, it's a storm, but you're deeply rooted. Whereas if you don't have that, you get thrown, thrown around. Like how do you see your, your broader work around resilience and cultivating that groundedness so I actually, us at this I don't, pr- I don't give um, primacy to groundedness. Really? I, nope. Okay. I don't give primacy to any state. I give primacy to adaptiveness to the current moment. Ah. 
So the capacity to adapt. So basically the, the ability to, to mount the lowest stress response that will work in any given situation. Huh. That's a, that's a different way to think about it. It makes total sense. Because, you know, I think it's from my work with people experiencing really serious ongoing crisis, right? And I like Really, I look back and I feel like my own life, my own trauma history and the work that I've done has kind of prepared me for this moment. Like this is like where I work. This is, you know, the resilience toolkit. We've been using it with people experiencing high levels of community violence in South African townships, in the United States, um, people in gangs, people who've been trafficked, refugee torture survivors. I mean, like really hard situations, people experiencing homelessness, at the same time as chronic mental illness and substance abuse, like, right, like tons of crisis and, and, and recognizing that, um, this idea that all stress responses are normal and actually welcome. And it's so important in times like this to normalize this for people and not, um, say like, well, you should be here or you should be there. Like sometimes when it's that overwhelming, a shutdown and a checkout and going, I mean, I think about healthcare workers, right? Right. I'm a nurse. I think about in times where I would work, um, I used to work on a, um, at a hospital that we would take airlifts. Right. And so I would know that something was coming and I knew it was bad and you'd hear the helicopter and I would get into this really calm and eerie calm place to be like all business. But I had to do have some kind of numbness going on. That's not ground. That's not centered. That's not grounded. I'm not connected to my deepest self because I can't open my heart right now. I need to be all business. But it serves you in that purpose. In that moment, it serves the purpose. And so that makes sense. Right. And the ability to know that I'm going into that state, to use that state and recognize when it's no longer needed and shift out of it. And then maybe I ground and center, right? At that moment, like that, that's the capacity that allows me to rest and regenerate and connect and all the things I need to do. And so I think is giving people permission to, you know, observe their stress states and help them, you know, match whatever needs to be happening at the moment. Because I think a huge place, what I've been, I just launched this, like these public classes that we've been doing for free called Anchoring Resilience for Turbulent Times, which is a piece of the Resilience Toolkit. Resilience Toolkit's very adaptable. So this piece is, is this part, is that a huge pot of our resilience is lost, right? When we're, we're over, um, we're just putting out more stress than we need to for any given situation. It makes things that much harder because we're that much further from connection ourselves or others. We're that much further from creative problem solving. We're that much further from rest and regeneration. And so if we can just get down to what's needed in the moment, right? That's, you know, we're not wasting, wasting that, that bit of energy and also how much harder it makes, right? Like when we're, more stressed, we're rigid and we're not good problem solvers. It's got to be my way, right? We're controlling. And in times like this, we need creativity. So it sounds like in this piece of the toolkit, you talk about how we, we're, we're wasting some of our energy. Huge amounts. 
Yeah. If and we're it not- makes it harder. It's not only are we wasting energy because of what it takes to mount a higher stress response. It's when we're in that stress response, it's not adapted to the situation, which makes everything harder. So it's like a twofold problem that's happening. So like at now we need each other, right? We need each other to get through. No one's getting through this by, you know, this is where we realize as even as a society, who is an essential worker, right? Who do we need, right? And so this ability to connect to one another is so crucial, right? To get through. But the higher our stress response, the more we disconnect from others. We have a harder time with that connection. So it's so the the work would be to be able to observe our stress responses, allow them to be, to not try to control them, but to be adaptable, and then to to find ways to um, what would what what word would you use when we're when we're at that higher stress to to downregulate downregulate you- downshift settle something in that in that, um, and I generally we're overestimating threat almost all the time, and yeah, so I like that. you know and we're programmed for that is for survival and plus our histories and so the ability to put in a practice whatever that practice is and. If your system, if you feel a little downshift in your stress response, it's a good learning. Like, hey, I was overestimating stress, my, you know, what the danger was. And you get better, right? You get better predictive at at doing that. How do you do that though? As I'm watching the the numbers rise in terms of the number of cases and deaths, and you're watching New York, you know it's coming for other states. How do you how do you do that? So it's wherever I am. Like if I'm having a response and it seems appropriate, there's nothing to do. Like if I need to okay. shut down because I feel overwhelmed, there's nothing to do. That's okay. It's just how long do I stay there? Okay. It's okay. not, you know. Um, and so for me personally, like I recognize I used to always run like super high more than I needed. And now after years of practice, I'm much closer to usually what the situation needs, but I'll just bring in a practice and I will do a practice and observe. And if I feel myself settle a little bit, it's just note to self. I didn't need that much, right? Note to self. I didn't need that much. And what I, the big thing with the resilience toolkit is we have sort of these guiding questions, right? And the guiding questions, which I think make it different than other stress reduction or trauma healing kind of things is there's a lot of practices out there, mindfulness and yoga, right? But no, not necessarily the psychoeducation to tell you to figure or the the education period to know where you are in your stress response and know which direction you're moving. And so I think about like some people will meditate and they feel more centered. They feel more grounded. They feel more spacious. And some people meditate and they feel like numb and checked out right? Which is actually a higher stress response, right? When you're numb and checked out. And so if you don't have that, that framework, you're using tools, but not really knowing how to apply them. So it's like, I have a, a drill, but I don't really know when I use a drill and how to use a drill. And so our guiding questions around the toolkit are, what is my state, right? And so it's an exploration of what is my state, right? Second question, is it serving me? The type of the type of response and the intensity, is it serving me? If it's not, or you have a hint that it might not be, is can I bring in a practice? And 
if as I use a practice, how do I know it's working? Right? That mm. bit, how do I know that it's actually working? And so those kinds of guiding questions help whether you're doing a practice that's in the toolkit specifically, the mindfulness and movement practices, or anything that you do, exercise, prayer, dancing, what video games, Instagram, right? Is it, it how is this working for me? So it restores a sense of self-agency, which also helps us feel better in times of stress. Absolutely. No, I appreciate that summary. And I'm I'm glad to hear that the toolkits it's it its work is expanding. I mean, I know before even this moment, you were in London and all over the world. Um, but and also in if I'm if I'm correct, police departments even you were in corrections and all sorts of places and spaces. Uh, maybe it might be worth sharing with folks like the the range of of communities that you've worked with to do this work. And so, I mean, it's not just me. I have an organization and then we developed a certification program. So people are certified. We've probably certified about 50 people in the last two years um, or so. Um, And so people are doing different kinds of implementation. And then we come together in a community of practice and learn from another. So each other about, um, you know, just how to, you know, it's a very flexible model. So how do you translate it for different, different settings? And I think that's what makes it stronger in that we use a number of different stress models because there's different ways to think about stress. Like often we think about fight, flight, and freeze, which doesn't really acknowledge hierarchy or things that are chronic or gendered responses to stress. So there's, um, you know, we use different models depending on who we're working with. Um, But the idea of adaptive, this adaptive stress response works really well for law enforcement right? And, and this idea that when they, they need to be vigilant, that's part of their jobs, and, but they don't know how to turn it off. And they come home to their families, and we see high domestic violence, and we see, you know, they, and they're struggling, and their health, physical health is also struggling because they don't know how to turn it off. Well, you made me think about the piece around it being gendered. It's gendered, and it's also racialized. And you made me think about one of the first times I heard you do what you do, you explained epigenetics in a way that was just brilliant. Brilliant. I don't know if you remember it. The piano. It's the piano metaphor. I'm the queen of metaphors. (laughs) But it was brilliant because I think, you know, people talk about how, like as Black folks, we have this intergenerational trauma um, and we have some research also around Jewish folks in the Holocaust. And um, and I think that it's interesting because at times like this in St. Louis, the first two deaths, the, fir- the only two deaths so far in our region have been Black women. And so there's this, there's this feeling of like, okay, we know that we're disproportionately at risk because of some under, under, underlying health conditions, but just that, ex, that vigilance that you just mentioned made me think about how some of our stress responses are, are shaped by our social identities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like a, there's a bi-directional relationship between our genes, like our, basically biology and culture, biology and culture. And they, you know, go back and forth, um, in, in many different ways. And, um, 
I think probably genetically as well, not just epigenetically. And so for like here, you brought it in. So I'm going to explain the epigenetics in, because I think it's thrown around and it's often confused with genetics by, um, by people who are not science and with that science background. And so it's just a, epi just means on top. So if you think about your genes as piano keys, right? And you, you know, you have all of the piano keys, right? Um, and you were born with those piano keys and, you know, barring taking a hammer and breaking some of them, they're all there and they're functional. Um, but what you can do is you can lay on top your fingers and play some and not others. And this is where you can play different songs. And this is what our cells do. It's why, you know, this might be a skin cell and, um, you know, I have blood cells. They all have the same piano keys, but in here it's playing the song of skin and in blood it's playing the song of blood. And so recognizing that those, those little hands that go on and off, um, that our environment, things that we eat, experiences, make things go on and off all the time. But we know that certain points in our, in our development are epigenetically sensitive, like pregnancy. So I think about this right now for folks who are pregnant, right? I think about this right now. So what happens is when you're pregnant, that those little hands come down and play like, wow, what's the environment that you're growing up in? that the woman is pregnant in? Is it extremely stressful? Is there a lot of violence? Is there, um, are you dealing with the day in and day out of crushing racism, right? And so there's an upregulation of the stress response. And so the message to this baby is you're coming into a world where you need to be on guard. And that baby will come in on guard. So even um, the Rwandan genocide, there's some little research that has come out of that showing also really? some, so it's not just, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I can send you that article. It's a very that's yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah. And so we're carrying this memory of like, oh, I need to be, I need to be ready. I need to be vigilant, which means, you know, Stress responses are meant to be short-lived. When they're long-lived, it's a heavy... It, that's the weathering. That's the weathering that we experience. And that's ah, so much so that's, of, I think, about um, African-American women, Black women, um, maternal mortality, right? That a big part of that is the weathering. It's not just the racism in the structure of care. It's also in the weathering. Um, so we see earlier onset of chronic illness right? Which then predisposes to, to maternal death. So, yeah. I, you know, I just had done a, um, I do a lot. We also do a lot of trauma informed like, um, training and this kind of thing. And so I just was doing a call this week for an African-American, um, doula project to support women. Right. And so thinking about here we are in a pandemic, here we are where hospitals are limiting to one visitor or maybe no visitors. When black women have been told having someone by your side can save your life and are now having to go in in an adversarial relationship to a healthcare system with no support. Alone. It was I like, have a woo! Yep, yep. I, have a, I was just about to ask you what, what your work tells us about this, these times. And that was one that I had not thought of 
but I have a, a colleague and they're they're pregnant and they're due in a couple weeks and they are having to think through not having their mother next to them, not having their partner next to them, not having their one of their children who wanted to be present at the birth there. And that in actuality, it feels scary, but it actually keeps those people they love safe because if they can stay home, then and 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 my colleague and their baby can can come out of the process without being infected with COVID. Uh, they can go back into a home where they know the people are safe to be around the baby. Whereas like you, so this it's you're, you're stuck. So the idea of going through labor alone would scare the scare me. It would scare me because like you said, it's adversarial. When you're scared, what happens with, you know, labor doesn't move well. It doesn't and move And so you're going well. to see a higher risk of C-section. C-section. And then with healthcare resources so stretched, this is going to be really hard. I mean, I'm also trained as a nurse midwife, and I actually had a home birth practice for seven years. And it's really interesting when suddenly we would battle. I mean, we're, we're credentialed. We have safe practice. You know, all of the things, right? Like most... Um, you know, many countries where, you know, home birth is common, which actually have better statistics than us. And we would fight and fight insurance companies for them to pay. And now all of a sudden, when you, they said it couldn't be done, suddenly they're like, oh, home birth, this is a great idea, right? <laughs> this is a great idea. And because it saves them money in the first place, right? That's true. Better outcomes, you know, say, you know, all of these things, but there was this resistance because we just don't do that this way, that way here. You can do it in England, but you can't do it here. Um, and suddenly home birth has become a thing, hmm. right? But so, then what's frustrating though, is you need to be in an area where that practice was allowed to develop, right? So here in St. Louis, the the doulas and midwives have been having to fight, fight to even get in the hospitals. And so I would imagine in, in LA, there's a great. much... It's not? California is very medically conservative, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Very medically I'm learning some new stuff. I assumed... That there's, they would have a better better network. No, there's like two midwives that are have private practice in Los Angeles with hospital privileges. It's very difficult to get them. Um, so I, I you, you would know. think California would be progressive in that way. No, actually, medically, there's there's too many. Like you know, um, yeah, no, it's quite medically conservative. Actually, like Massachusetts, for example, much more medically liberal. Mm -hmm. Huh. Mm -hmm. New York, huh. much more medically liberal. Interesting. In terms of practice, like we still have to be supervised by a physician, which it's like makes no sense at all. Um, right. And is fine. And, you know, been that supervisory language has been removed in most states. But every year we have a bill and every year the doctors fight it. So, but in, it just shows like what, you know, what we were originally talking about that under pressure, we can have new openings, but we can only have new openings when people, because some people can double down, right? And that's this whole idea. If people can keep their stress just low enough, we can take advantage of new openings. Yeah. Otherwise, we just double down into, you know, annihilation. Yeah. What other opportunities are you seeing for different different ways to move? What other openings have mutual you seen? Mutual aid. Ah, I have so been seeing an explosion of mutual aid. Like 
there's all, you know, always been a little bit of mutual aid. Um, I do a lot of resilience building for activists and organizers as well. And so there's been spaces where people have been doing mutual aid, but it's exploding. So, you know, people, um, Seattle had one of the first really big ones where you can go to their mutual aid Google and you type in, this is, you know, I'm homebound. I came out of quarantine. This is what I need. And you have a list of volunteers and a GoFundMe. And between it, it, it cycles and works like that. And so I've seen it, you know, spontaneous people who've never done anything before. Suddenly, like there's a hundred people doing shopping for elderly people, right? So this, um, and it's important. It's not done by professionals. It's done by regular yes. people. And that, yes. that sense of um, care, like co- there's a sense of collective care and also agency with it, right? So collective care and agency, it's beautiful, it is beautiful. And what's been interesting to me is how, how, like you said, it's not that a company is coming in and setting it up, that it's happening organically. And I have known pockets of communities that I've been a part of um, that have that have served that role for each other. And, and it, to me, it's a moment to learn from my folks who are in movement and who are in activist communities who, who have been doing this sort of like really intentional community building in a way that many of us have not been engaged in day to day. We benefit from, but not been engaged in day to day. And so I think that's, that's really important to lift up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, we have somebody who wants to say hi. Hello. <laughs> of course Why, they hello, do. Kitty. Of course they do. Um, things like, you know, where people may get deliveries direct from farms right? Your farm box. And suddenly people are like, oh, that's a fantastic idea, right? I've been doing myself farm box for like 22 years, right? And so I'm like so happy that my farm box is coming. And, you know, so this is like, oh, how do we connect in different ways um, directly to producers? Yes. Um, What is it? That's been actually, that's where I felt safest shopping is our local co-op. And where I think really early on they got they got it. So you could order online. And then when you got there, you didn't get to come in the store. You stayed outside or they could call you if, from your car when you were ready to come in. They you know, were using gloves as they were getting people's orders. You didn't have to touch anything. You swiped your card on the little square and they sh- signed an X for you. And then they changed their gloves for the next person. And so you know, people talk about going to Costco or Sam's or like the big box places. And yes, you can get lots of food for a lot of time. But I felt like, no, I'm going to go where I get my local meats and and eggs and and vegetables. And they are caring about me in a real intentional way. And you're right. Like, I love it. And that's where I go. But for other people, they're just discovering that there's a way to do there's there's such thing as a co-op or there's such thing as a CSA. Um, there are ways to, to work supported agriculture. Absolutely. What's that? Or yes. Or um, there's a localization that's happening. That's another thing I'm seeing that people are localizing, right? And realizing what's what are the resources actually within their smaller networks. Yes. Right. Yes. So, um, and we're still very globally connected, but we're connecting in local ways that I that is are kind of amazing. So yeah, I mean I. That is, that's a gift. Cause I had been saying, I really need to give up Amazon. Like I really need to give up Amazon <laughs> and I've been trying to use it less and less, but 
yeah, I mean, this is a perfect opportunity. This is a perfect opportunity to do things differently, to source them locally rather than hop on and have it at your door in two days because you can't have it at your door in two days anymore. And if we have, you know, this continues, right, where it's going, you know, what happens to our supply chain, right? And so, um, and one of the things that they're discovering is the um, sort of on-demand uh, like stores where it's like just on time that the concept of just on time is why so many stores have empty shelves. It's not that there's not enough. It's this um, razor thin margins extracting as much profit as possible. So just on time delivery means they don't have to stock much on site, especially right. if real estate cost is high. They can, right. right. So this is like in London, there was a nice analysis showing that People weren't hoarding that over a three week period, there was only a 10% rise in overall sales in all markets. That's not hoarding. No. But why the shelves were empty was the just on time. Huh. So that they weren't anticipate, they couldn't even handle that 10%. Right. Interesting. So even like how the stores are operating and, and, and keeping their stock in is changing. Everything is changing. Huh. It makes me think about Octavia Butler and just the fact that, you know, it changed. We can shape change, but we also have to, not have to, uh, but we can shape change, period. And how, and I mean, so it's like how we are interacting with each other. Like, I think the amount of intentional, when we've been asked to socially distance, which I don't use the term, I like spatial distance. Right. So we're spatially or physically distant, but there's suddenly been such interest in connection, human connection. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone else was on their phone and, and now all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, I need connection. Right. Yeah. I've been using the term social spaciousness, which I read somewhere and I can't, I want to be able to cite where I read it and I haven't seen it since. It was like on someone's Instagram story way back when. And, you know, way back when, like 10 days ago, and I can't find who said it. But similarly, I don't like the idea of social distancing because it feels like arm's length, like I'm distancing from you, whereas social spaciousness is for like giving each other the space that we need to be healthy and to take care of each other. Um, but you're, you're right. You've seen this uptick. Like last night I mentioned to my children that, that their grandparents would probably love to hear from them. And they went to bed and I heard all this like raucous and I was thinking that they were playing pranks on each other and not going to sleep. Well, no, they called all of their grandparents. They FaceTimed all of their grandparents (laughs) and it was precious and I, di- I didn't have to be a part of that. I didn't orchestrate that, right? Like they had agency and they did it and they totally made their days because of course that connection that sometimes we're too busy going to Taekwondo and basketball and schoolwork and all of that to stop and call the grandparents. We're never so going to be been the beautiful. same. We're, our, the worldwide, we are never going to be the same hmm. because That's it's beautiful. also long enough, right? It's a long enough period like we're looking at probably eight weeks. Truthfully, if science has its way, it's eight weeks. That's a long enough time for these things to really set. I'm excited about the possibility. I really am. So, I mean, so it's what painful. else? I mean, it's going to be painful. I don't want to like sugarcoat that. But there really oh, is. It's I- like, it's both and. Both oh, absolutely. Are true. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I'm also like, like you said, in terms of, 
allowing our states to be what they are. Like as I talk to you about like what's possible and what could be different and transforming patterns, that's exciting. But the minute I drop into the fact that someone I know and love will be impacted and possibly might be one of the death statistics, that's that's sad. Like that had me crying in the shower the other night. And how we have to allow ourselves to move through those different emotions just is. Mm -hmm. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. If folks want to engage with the toolkit or engage with the offerings that you mentioned around um, the free workshops, how would they find you? Um, There's a couple ways you can look the resilience toolkit.co CO not M. I thought there was a better use for multi thousand, many thousands of dollars to not buy an M. Um, The resilience toolkit.co Lumos transforms on all the socials. I'm on Twitter uh, and in chem and defo. I'm sure you'll put those, that in show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, reach out. We're doing anchoring resilience for turbulent times three times a day, three times a day, three times a day, 7 AM, uh, 12 PM and 7 PM Pacific time. So we've covered, we've had people from 20 different countries so far. We've been doing them for a week. And it's been uh, tremendous from Vietnam, Brazil, Turkey, Israel, like really all over, all over the United States. And it's been something really tremendous to have people come together in space. And they're small groups, like we limit it to no more than 30. And so smallish groups and to see people come together. And I do a practice at the beginning, I'm just going to share where I have folks. And just as a as an as a suggestion or an invitation to any of your anybody watching is at the start of all of the calls is just have people orient to their space what are they hearing right what maybe they're smelling some coffee or a candle um what are they feeling like what are they sitting on the clothing against their body and what are they seeing in their space and then have the folks type it in if it's a large call if it's small you can share it and it's so beautiful, like it, time just slows down, there's a little bit of settling, and you come into connection, into a deeper social connection when our spaces touch. And so you hear that, you know, somebody right in Mumbai is seeing the sun come up, and somebody in Istanbul is seeing the sun set. And, you know, someone's hearing their children laughing in the other room, someone's, you know, cat is curled up on their lap right? Birds are outside here and there. And it's such a beautiful way to come together and realize that if not for this horrible thing we are living through, we would not be together. And so I invite like in any time you're in a gathering virtually, it's a beautiful practice um, to help us feel each other a little better. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I I really appreciate you sharing your time with us and your wisdom. Thank you so much uh, for for the conversation and for, you know, for all you do. All you do. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us on Raising Equity. Please do check out the resources that we'll have for you in the show notes and on the screen if you're watching on video. And we'll see you next time on Raising Equity. Raising Equity.